This is the Main Event Boxing Podcast, and here's your host, Ben Damon. Thanks for your company on the Main Event Boxing Podcast. On this episode, I thought I'd take the opportunity to have a chat with one of the great and colourful characters of Australian boxing, the former IBF Super Featherweight Champion of the World and my co-commentator on many of our Fox Sports and Main Event Boxing broadcasts, Barry Michael. Barry was a brilliant boxer, a brutal body puncher, and as you'll hear, he's had a fascinating life inside and outside the boxing ring. Like all of us at the moment, he is in lockdown, so I caught up with Barry on the phone from his home in Williamstown in Melbourne. Baz, thanks for your time. How are you coping with this bizarre new world that we're living in at the moment? Yeah, it is a, certainly a bizarre new world, Ben, but, uh, you know, my wife and I seem to be coping pretty well. Um, yeah, it's given us a fair bit of, lot of time together and, you know, we're doing a, still doing exercise, you know, going for long walks, etc. We're, we're right near the water here, so, it's a, you know, it's probably one of the best parts of Melbourne to be in and, uh, yeah, just doing a little bit of shopping here and there, just, you know, getting what's necessary, but, yeah, it's certainly very strange times. Yeah, it really is. Um, I guess what we do have is time um, at the moment, so I thought we might as well have a, a decent chat about your life, your boxing career, and some of the stories that you've told me probably over a beer, but um, a lot of people <laughs> may not know about um, your incredible history. Uh, we may as well start at the beginning of your arrival in Australia because some may not even realise that um, you're an Australian sporting legend, but you're actually a 10-pound pom. Oh, mate, I'm, I'm an import, yeah, like my parents... Uh migrated from the UK when I was two and uh, my brother was, my older brother was four uh, and we actually moved to Hamilton. My dad was uh, uh, you know, he, he, did, uh, he went through the Second World War in the Lancaster Bombers as, a, as the actual bomber. He used to drop the bombs and his skipper, uh, Johnny Reimer who was a doctor down at Hamilton sponsored us out through the Apex Club and we, we lived in Hamilton for probably our first four, four odd years and dad was uh, managing uh, caretaker of a, of a girls' college, a Catholic girls' college, where we lived on the grounds there. When I've got my first memories of Australia, there rabbit hunting and fishing and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, right. Um, and, and when did you come across boxing? Uh, I, I think you started in the gym. Did you about fifteen? No, it's, it's probably younger than that. Um, my dad, you know, because dad had about twenty fights in the in the in the British yeah. um, British Air Force. Uh, he, he basically showed us from pretty early age, I think from about eight, how to hold our hand, you know, hands up, punch straight, keep our head down. And when we were living, because we moved from we moved from um, Hamilton to uh, Glen Burvey, uh, which is Essendon, right next to Essendon. That's where I became a bomber supporter. And by the time I think I was four, Dad had us, the whole family naturalised. So we, you know, Aussies, the true blue Aussies, yeah. from then on, and. Um, I think when we were about eight or nine, Dad took us to a gym in somewhere in Essendon. I've never been able to work out who it was or where it was, but we used to, my elder brother and I used to spar there a bit. But then I, we moved to Williamstown when I was probably about nine, I guess, um, maybe eight, maybe younger, maybe eight. And we lived in commission flats. We lived in commission flats in Glen Burvey and we lived in commission flats in Williamstown, flat one, number, number 99, flat one, number 99, uh, Aitken Street, Williamstown, which were pulled down about 40 years ago. 
But um, when we were in the flats in Williamstown, it was pretty rugged there back in those days, long before the Westgate Bridge. And um, when I was probably, oh, I don't know, about 13, I think it was, Lionel Rose won the World Bantamweight title. I might have been a little bit younger than that. And that became my inspiration. And at that stage, we... My brother and I used to spar with people in the, in the in the flats with gloves. Dad provided good gloves for us, and and we used to punch on a little bit, but we hadn't actually fought. And it was only when I was 15, my older brother came home and said he'd been to a local gym, and they said he was good enough to fight. So I went down the next night, um, sparred the best kid they had there, a guy called Noel Vadarkovic, uh, Nabusha, uh, who was you know tough, tough, hard guy, and I think he'd had a couple of fights at that stage. And I probably held him about even, no head guards. I don't even think I had a mouth guard, horsehair gloves. And the trainer, um, David, said, oh, you know, you can, you can fight if you want to fight. So I trained twice a week for three weeks. I had my first fight, fought a bloke who had 10 fights and one on points. And that was, I was just hooked from then on, absolutely hooked. Yeah, okay. And then was it when you went professional that you decided to go by the name of Barry Michael rather than the family name of Sweatman? Yeah, my full name is Barry Michael Swettenham, but you know, as a you know, growing up with the TV, TV ringside was like a it was such an iconic um, yeah, television yeah. show. It was like a religion for everyone to watch it on a Monday night. And, um, you know, uh, watching Lionel Rose as I said win the world title, that and, and Johnny Famisham, they were my two inspirations. But when we um, started the, you know, when we decided to turn professional at 18. Uh, and I had I had 17 amateur fights. I won the first five. Then I lost five in a row. Then I went to Alan Meeker, a different trainer, um, and I had seven more for for six wins. I think it was. Let me think. Yeah, yeah that's right. And um, and then I turned professional. I decided to turn professional at 18, which you had to be 18 at that stage. And um, I just because Merv Williams was one of the main commentators with Ron Casey. And I just thought Sweatenham would have been a bit of a mouthful, so I, I dropped the Sweatenham and just fought under the name of Michael. But Sweatenham, S-W-E-T-T-E-N-H-A-M, is, is a very old English name with a coat of arms and the village of Sweatenham. And, of course, the Sangsters own the Sweatenham Stud and the, and the Sweatenham Manor House. And, yeah, uh, and there's also the Port Sweatenham in um, Malaysia, I think it is. Yeah, you were very kind to the commentators, though. Sweatenham is pretty easy compared to a lot of the ones that we get stuck with on some of these undercards. <laughs> You're not wrong. You did say not wrong. But, uh, yeah, look, honestly, at school, I got in a lot of scraps at school because and one smart-ass actually called Sweatenham, called me perspiring pig, Sweatenham. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. That is good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, Obviously, you had an amazing professional career, Baz. Um, 60 professional fights. I don't think you were ever knocked down, were you? Um, and, and never took. Yeah. Never took an eight count as a professional no. then in 60 fights. Went close a wow. few times. I copped one eight count in my 10th amateur fight against Gary Austin, who made a comeback at 60 last year and won a, won a uh, knocked out the world uh, um, senior champion in the first round. <laughs> That uh, Gary Pardab was a very good fighter, and I still speak to him occasionally. Became very good mates, and we sparred a lot later on. But he's the only guy who ever put a legitimate knockdown on me. It was my, my tenth amateur fight for the state bantamweight championship, and I thought I was yeah, winning right. the fight. But he, he nailed me in round three. I went down. Supposed to only be one punch, but it, you know, certainly swayed the judges. Yeah, you've got an incredible memory for, for these things, but 60 professional fights, as I said, never knocked down. You won a world title, of course. We'll talk about the Lester Ellis fight shortly. But um, 
of all the opponents you did have, was there anyone that you didn't get in the ring against that you would have loved to? I know there was talk about a fight with Jeff Fennick, which would have been massive. Um, there was talk about a Ray Mancini fight at, at times as well. Anyone, uh, are those the standouts or anyone else? Well, to be honest with you, my goal and dream was always to fight for the world lightweight title, uh, you know, yeah. 1.2 kilograms. And um, I went very close to fighting Boom Boom. I was, I, when I fought Al Carter, which where they brought a black American out from in 1981 to fight me at the Dallas Brooks Hall and Carter had had 24 professional fights uh, won 23 by knockout um, all within four rounds he had one loss but he'd actually dislocated his uh, cartilage in his knee and couldn't continue after knocking the bloke down a couple of times so it should have been, should have been undefeated but when I fought him he had 19 straight straight wins you know all by knockout and uh, I was the, the winner was uh, supposed to fight Boom Boom Mancini for the world title. After I beat Carter, it, everything, nothing happened. I didn't get a shot at a world title. That was in 81. And in 87, just before I lost the world title to Rocky Lockridge um, in the United Kingdom, I was in uh, uh, Norfolk, Virginia um, at, the, at the IBF convention uh, letting them know why I hadn't fought for a while because Frank Warren had basically done nothing for me. And then I'd been beaten up in a nightclub and couldn't fight. And uh, I got to, I met David Wolf, who was Boom Boom Mancini's manager, and he told me he said because they were both from a long time Ohio, and he said when he said when I fought, he said I was on the sh- I was white and marketable. He said I was on, the- and I actually wrote him a letter like a job application trying to get a shot at the title, and he said and he was impressed with that, and he said <laughs> he said. Um, what, when you beat Carter, because they were both from Alliance, Ohio, he said, we didn't fancy Boom Boom against Carter. He said, when you beat Carter, we weren't going to fight you and neither was anyone else. So really it put a stop on my career, you know, for for a few years. And to, look, to the day I die, because I'm, I'm, I got as high as number two in the lightweight world ranking, I'm indebted to Lester Ellis for giving me the shot at the um, IBS Super Featherweight World title, which was a weight that I hadn't made for a decade. Yeah, you mentioned that fight with Al Carter, um, which, well, potentially turned into a bit of a negative given that you didn't get the uh, world title fight off the back of it. But, gee, it was an incredible performance, maybe the best of your career. For anyone who hasn't watched it, it is, it is on YouTube. You can watch the fight in full. I watched it again uh, just the other day, 1981. Um, Earthquake Al Carter, they called him. He'd, uh, he'd beaten Aaron Pryor and Tommy Hearns and the amateurs. Um, was he the biggest puncher that you'd ever faced? Because yeah, in the early I... rounds of that fight, gee, he was throwing them. Well, round one, he hit me he hit me with three right hands in round one. Yeah. And if you look look at me when I walked back to the corner, I sort of just went, whoa. <laughs> and, you know, like, he really... I nearly touched down in round one, but, you know, I, I was stunned briefly. And then I sort of, you know, my nervous system warmed up. And even though he was hitting me, was horrendous. And every shot he threw was loaded, absolutely, you know, incredible leverage he had. It wasn't until round eight. And I, by that, at that stage, I thought I was pretty well on top and... Starting, you know, had to be in front. But round 80, and the commentators saying, "Oh, you know, look, I've been hit with a dozen knockout punches. Didn't look like being hurt." And all of a sudden, Barry Michael's hurt. He's in trouble. He's hit me with a left hook, and I remember it just was like, you know, it's like an explosion in your head. And I knew I was still on my feet because I had pins and needles in my toes. I could feel, and he he realised, and he pushed me off and bombarded me, bombarded me about three times, and I made him miss with the majority of them. And then started coming back at the end of the round, and he basically punched himself out. And no one ever hit me as hard as, as that in round eight. I tell you, he, that was the closest I think I ever came to being knocked down. And I 
came back at the end of round eight. My dad said, yeah, okay, I said, I'm fine. And I went out one round nine and round ten. And round ten, I really, I nearly finished him off. Right on the bell, a lot of people thought the fight was stopped, but I had him sort of nearly defenseless against the race. And it, look, it was a tough fight. Uh, it was relatively close, but, you know, I got a unanimous decision. And, uh, yeah, so it was one of, it was certainly one of my greatest performances. But I really did cop some big punches in that fight, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, he was a brutal puncher. And, yeah, watching it back, you can tell at the end of the fight that the commentators, I think, thought that the referee, which I think it was Gus Mercurio, um, had stopped yeah. the fight. But, yeah. but as, it, um, as it turned out, he went the distance and he got the result anyway. But um, he seemed to take it pretty well, did he, Al Carter, even though he was oh, he his favourite coming he, in? He was extremely humble. Before the fight, he was extremely arrogant and... Uh, yeah, extremely arrogant, and like he was going to blow me away, like he'd blown everyone else away. And after the fight, he was extremely humble. He was a very nice guy, and I actually kept in contact with him a bit. And his manager, his management, until he he actually passed away, supposedly at his own hand. But there there is a bit of um, controversy about that. But his career went in de- decline really after the loss to me. He was really never the same. Yeah, it, it seems that way. Looking back through his history, that was. Um that was really a, a knock on where he was headed. Um, I guess the, the big fight of your career for most Australians is the Lester Ellis fight, 1985. Um, the way it turned out was that on February the 15th, uh, Lester Ellis won the IBF Super Featherweight World Title against Juan Killiou at Festival Hall. It was one week later exactly that you defended the Commonwealth Lightweight title against Porky Brook at Festival Hall as well. Um, was it straight away then that you decided that you wanted to try and drop the weight and challenge Leicester? Um, that's a good question, Ben. Uh, you know, it was just it was just uh, at some stage training, and uh, over the years I'd been promised shots at the world lightweight title so many times, and it was you know just wasn't going to eventuate. At one stage, after I won the Commonwealth title off um, Langton Tanago over 15 rounds, which was a big upset because no one thought it was going to beat Tanago and he passed away last year and been made the greatest fighter Zimbabwe's ever, ever produced, the greatest fighter ever. Um, and he'd just beaten Ken Buchanan before I fought him, the ex-world lightweight champion. Um, after after beating him, I thought I'd get a shot. Because back in the old days, you won the Australian title, you won the Commonwealth title, and then you'd fight for the world title. But things changed. And, look, I, I was just training one day, and I was frustrated, and I just knew I wasn't going to get a shot at the lightweight title. And I just said to my dad, Dad, I think I think I want to challenge Lester Ellis. And he said, son, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, I think I don't think I'm going to get a world title shot at lightweight. I want to drop down and fight Lester Ellis. Now, Lester at that stage was 20 in the world IBF featherweight champion. And I'd picked Lester at 12 years of age, the first time I ever sparred him as a future world champion. And we sparred up until maybe a year or so before we fought. And every time we sparred, even from 12, he tried to kill me. And it got the stage where, in the end, the last two spars, he did get away with me once, and I got away with him the last time. But there were reasons for that. But anyway, yeah, my dad said to me, son, I think you should give it away. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, I think maybe you've copped too much punishment because you can't make the weight. I said, dad, I'll do it. And look, I'll be honest with you, you know, listeners out there, I've always been pretty good on the fang. I've always loved my food and I've always loved the wine. So I always struggled to make whatever weight it was that I was fighting at. And I, when I did it properly and convinced Dad that I... Well, he actually was never really convinced until I went to a dietitian, which was Karen Inge, and she put me on a strict diet, had my fat content weighed underwater, worked out that I could do it scientifically, 
like a marathon runner at the right with the right body fat content and still be strong enough and fit enough to fight 15 rounds. And a month before the fight, I actually sparred 15 rounds and made the weight. And uh, yeah, so you know, I went in. I probably should have fought that weight all my life. But, and even my last successful defence against Najib Daho, I could have probably made, really made made the featherweight limit. When I came in that that light. Um, you mentioned that you sparred with Lester the first time when he was 12. So you would have been 21, 22. What, what did you see in him? 22. What did you see in him as a 12-year-old that showed you he was going to be a world champion and be as good as he, he became? He, um, he he just had this incredible reflex reflexes and speed and inherent anger. He you know he admitted in his book too he was because his mother and father split up when he was a young young boy and he, he was brought up by his father. Um, Keith Senior, who uh, was a ripper bloke, and, and, and yeah, he just had this sort of hatred against the world, and um, he just wanted to murder everyone. But he, he just had natural reflexes, you know, great head movement, incredible speed, and so I just I got out the ring and I said, "What's this kid's name?" And they said, "Lester Ellis." And I said, "This kid's going to be a world champion," and we became. And Graham Brooks was one I was sparring with a lot too, and the three of us. I mean, I helped train this. Trained the two of them, and we used to run together, and you know, um, yeah. And, and I was I was wrapped when Lester won his world title. He was filthy on me when I challenged him, but I was absolutely wrapped for him. But I mean, you know, it's a business. Boxing is a business, and I just thought to, to myself that uh, it, it's an opportunity for me to get a shot at a world title. And I knew it was going to be a hard fight with Lester, and it certainly certainly was a war. That's for sure. Do you think that those around Leicester at the time thought that you were going to kill yourself making the weight and that that's why why they had your measure? Oh, the, I think, to be honest with you, the biggest uh, trigger to, to make the fight happen was the fact that um, I think it was 83, 80, 83, I think it was, I went to um, New York with one of my management team, Jeff Patterson, um, incredible person who was very good friends with Donald Trump and other people. He actually spoke to Donald Trump when we were in New York and um, he um, and we, we sat and signed a world title fight contract in Bob Aram's office. I met the great Bob Aram, signed a contract with him. And Bob Aram said something like, if you can fight as good as you can talk, you're going to make me. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I went home and then I went back to Miami to fight a guy called Juan Arroyo, uh, which yeah. was National American Television. And, uh, and the winner was guaranteed a shot at the world cha- IBF world champion time at lightweight with Harry Arroyo. No relation, they weren't related. And uh, a week before the fight, or my last sparring session, probably eight days out from the fight, sparring at the famous Fifth Street gym. And I say, you know, like uh, Muhammad Ali trained there, Roberto Joanne trained there, Sugar Ray Leonard trained there, Barry Michael trained there, we all trained there. (laughs) So (laughs) a week, eight days, my last sparring session, I was sparring a Canadian fighter called Mario Tucson, who was... He was uh, he was a TV fighter over there, was making pretty good money and a pretty good fighter. I was sparring him, and I'd had this nagging heel injury, which I'd had three cortisone shots in a period of a couple of months, which weakened the tissue. I had a thing called plantar fascia, and I stepped forward on the ball on my foot. It was going to be my last sparring session before the fight with Arroyo, and just ripped completely. I ripped the plantar fascia completely off my heel, which when I came back the physios in, in Melbourne said they'd never seen a complete plantar fascia tear without an operation. So I was basically like an Achilles tear from the from the base of your heel. <clears throat> so yeah, the fight was off and it was the biggest opportunity of my life. And I came home and um, fought, 
Arroyo, five months later, I was managed by some by the waterfront boys, Leah McDonald and Spider Holman and Jeff Patterson, Leah Berry, and they brought Arroyo to Australia about five months later. And I stopped him. I think I think it was seven rounds. I stopped him in. But he was he was a he was a quality fighter, Arroyo. We're we're still mates on uh, Facebook. We speak quite regularly. Yeah, um, you mentioned the, the Waterside boys. Uh, there were some really colourful characters uh, in and around boxing in Victoria, in, in Melbourne in those days. I guess they still are um, nowadays, really, but but uh, particularly through those days in, in regards to this promotion. Um, Alphonse Gantitano called you a month or so out from the Lester Ellis fight. Um, what was that conversation? Yeah, well, yeah, Alphonse was basically, you know, with the Cedar bus lines and and, and the Ellis camp and superstar promotion, and uh, he was more or less their their heavy, I guess, um, Gangitano. And I'd known him for a long time throughout the nightclubs and knew he had a reputation for extreme violence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but always got on okay with him. And he rang me up about a month before the fight, and it was only a day or so after I'd actually. I look at that was I forgot to say too. Hang on a minute. The reason I, I transgressed a bit there. The reason that uh, they that they I got the fight was my trainer Dana Goodson. When I collapsed in Miami, oh, yeah. got, when I collapsed in Miami, Dana Goodson was a, a black American who I lived with in Hawaii after two fights there in Hawaii, um, and he was the number two heavyweight kickboxer in the world. I brought him to Australia, and he became my trainer or one of my trainers. And after I collapsed in Miami. Uh, within a week, and I bought him. I bought him to Australia a year prior to that fight. Um, after I collapsed in Miami, he, within one week of getting back in Melbourne, he was Lester Ellis's trainer. Now he saw me struggle to make 63 in a fight in Hawaii. Yeah. I had to actually run to take the weight. So I'm sure he was instrumental in letting, telling the Ellis camp that I couldn't possibly make the weight. Anyway, let's get back to Gangitano. Gangitano, a month before the fight with Lester. After I'd actually made the weight in the gym on proper scales, uh, 58.9, then I sparred, I, I fueled up like I would normally, and I sparred 15 rounds with four different opponents. Uh, Gangitano rang me a couple, and I pulled up as good as gold. And they, they were Graham Brooks, uh, Darcy Ritchie, Brian Butler was one of them. I can't think of who the last one was, but I, yeah. I sparred four different guys over 15 rounds, pulled up as good as gold, and it felt as strong as an off just as strong as I normally would have. And Gangitano rang me up and asked me if I wanted more tickets. And I said, yes, I do. And I was selling heaps. And I said, but look, stop backing Lester. He can't beat me. And he said, I'm not backing either. He said, I you know, love you like brothers. And I said, listen, Al, I know you're backing Lester. I know you. Dana's told you I can't make the weight. I've made the weight already a month out from the fight. And I said, you know, stop backing him. And he insisted he wasn't. But, yeah, so for months and months they were paying after the fight, they put plenty on the letter. Um, there's a lot there that you said, but um, amongst it, um, you, you mentioned um, Dwight Ritchie's father, Darcy. Um, Dwight, of course, passed away last year. How good a boxer was he? Sort of one of those ones who who, who became a bit of a legend in gyms, uh, had a decent career, but um, never really went on with it, but um, obviously very talented. Oh, he, Darcy Ritchie was one of the most talented and, you know, part Aboriginal uh, from the Shepparton area. Darcy Ritchie, you know, Ripper Blake, we're still, we're still in contact now. He won 21 straight on TV ringside yeah. um, back in those days. And unfortunately, he got, you know, he started to do a few silly things. And got, you know, got arrested for a few dumb things like stealing cattle and horses and stuff like that. 
Um, but a brilliant talent, and young Dwight Ritchie was very, very similar to the way he fought. Uh, Darcy was one of my main sparring partners always before big fights, and yeah, a ripper bloke. And, you know, could have gone a lot, lot further if he had been serious. Yeah, okay. On to the fight itself, um, July the 12th of 1985, it was Festival Hall. Um, they had about, what, six or 7,000 in there, I, I think. So, a, a full house. Yeah. And, and watching it back, Daz, they're not going for you. No, 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 no. That, I'd upset everybody because, you know, let's. The new Lester was the new kid on the block. You know, I'd beaten Graham Brooks, who was another crowd favourite, like Rose's first cousin. You know, like, uh, Graham had won 21 straight before I took the Commonwealth title off him. I'd lost the Commonwealth title in a fight that I promoted against Lord Noel about a year prior to that, a year or so prior to that. Lost on a 15 round split decision, and Claude Noel had been world lightweight champion five months before I fought him. I was more worried about the selling the tickets and the actual fight itself and then uh, Graham Brooks six six months or so later took the Commonwealth title off Claude Noel in Melbourne and I, I was his number one contender so he had to defend against me and I was seriously booed in the ring when I fought Graham because you know I knew I was going to be too physically strong for him and, and look Graham and I are great mates one of the most talented fighters I ever ever sparred and fought and you know for three or four rounds gave me hell with my physical strength but got on top as I figured it would with Leicester. Anyway, after the Brooks fight, yeah, you know, it was, we moved on to the challenging Leicester. And when I got in the ring, as you said, you know, everyone booed me and Leicester kept me waiting in the ring for, I don't know, 25 minutes or so. It's unbelievable watching it back. Um, I've watched that fight a million times, but you're standing in the ring with no gloves on. They're introducing people from the crowd. Lionel gets in the ring. Like Everything happens before Leicester comes out. Um, it's it's just an incredible amount of time. Was that common in fights in those days? Did you ever wait that long in the no, ring? No, I'd never waited that long before, but it was it was typical of, of Keith, uh, Keith Ellis Jr., Lester's brother, who unfortunately passed away quite a few years ago and, you know, became one of Australia's best trainer, trainers. Yeah. He, he basically learned from me and, you know, the psychological aspect of boxing was one of my, always one of my big things and, he, he basically told Lester, because Lester, if you read Lester's book, Lester's saying, let's get out there, let's get out there, and I want to get out there and knock him out. And Keith's saying, no, no, let's make him wait, make him wait. He was just playing psychological games. But to be honest with you, I was extremely comfortable in the ring. I knew my day was had come, which I'd waited for for so long, so many years, and, you know, been promised and, and seen world title fight contracts and signed world title fight contracts like with Aram and that. And I, I just knew my day had come, and and that sooner or later, because, you know, there's, the hall was chock-a-block to the brim, maybe 7,000 people, whatever it was, capacity. And he had to come out. It didn't matter how long he was going to make me wait. You know, the fight was going to happen. And uh, anyway, he, he came he had to get, and he got in the ring. And I walked up to him and I said, uh, thanks for the title, Lester. This is before the fight had even started. And he went, you know, F off and sort of brushed me away. And I said something pretty nasty to Dana Goodson, actually, you know, because he, he really does the dirty on me and he was in Lester's corner he was Lester's trainer and I'd live with him in Hawaii, trained with him promoted him in Melbourne, had him living in my house, had him driving my car got him jobs and then when I collapsed in Miami he jumped ship within a week, he probably he thought I'd missed the boat, which everyone thought I'd missed the boat and possibly I was past my best as a fighter but I still knew I had enough, enough left to, to win a world title and 
and uh, Dana was in the other corner. Yeah, so it was it was interesting. And anyway, the fight when we came to centre ring, if you you know you watch the replay, Leicester. And another thing I taught Leicester and Graham was, and Graham never would have really done it, was talk to your opponents when you you know beforehand or you know when you landed a good shot or whatever, basically to psych them out. And I knew Leicester would talk to me, and he, we came to centre ring. And if, if you can read lips, you can read it pretty clearly. He starts going, you're effed, you're effed, you know, I'm going to knock you out, you're an old man, you're going down, you're going down. And I, and I just said, Lester, I call him a young, um, oh, young something pretty, very strong expletive, yeah. I'm going to kick kick your effing backside. And you can read my lips clearly. And, uh, and he just kept saying, you're, I'm going to knock you out, I'm going to knock you out, you're going down, you're going down, you're an old man, I'm going to knock you out, you know. And then we touched gloves and... Uh, there was there really was a lot of hatred. Lester was filthy. He wanted to he wanted to murder me because I'd challenged him. And when we came out in the very if you have a look at the replay, the very first punch he throws is a left hook to the body and I caught it on my elbow but it slipped under my elbow and hit me in the lower right side of my body and it was like someone stuck a knife in me. The very first opening seconds of the first round. And I think it actually after the fight, I passed blood, and I think it might have been that first shot because it was really, it felt like it tore something, but then, you know, I got into the fight and you forget the pain, and you have to forget the pain, basically. Yeah, it's a great fight. I've watched it a lot of times. Um, yeah, a few things there. I was fascinated that you put your gloves on in the ring. I don't know if that's something that you've done uh, a lot of times at that sort of level, certainly not in world title fights. That would be, that would be um, unusual, wouldn't it? Well, uh, it used to be pretty common back in those days, actually. Yeah, okay. yeah, you know, for Commonwealth title fights and big fights, you'd put the gloves on in the ring. You know, they you'd have your hands taped up beforehand. You'd have them signed off by whoever the official was, so that you couldn't tamper with your, your, your okay. you know, your your, your, your uh, bandages in tape, etc. And you'd put the gloves on in the ring and tape them up in front of each other, so and, and basically, you know, acknowledge that everything was fine. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess it's, um, yeah, it makes sense in some ways. It's a delay in, in others. And um, you mentioned uh, uh, your former trainer, Dana Goodson. Uh, he walked to the ring in front of uh, Lester Ellis. Lester had his hands um, over his shoulders. So he, yeah. Yeah, he, he, was, he was right in there. And then all that talk um, between the pair of you, there was clearly a lot being said. Do you think that Lester um, had started to buy into the promotion? Um, did, did he have a genuine dislike because you challenged him? Or uh, what was going on there? Was something that Lester liked to do to really psych himself into fights? Lester was a vicious, he was one of the, the most vicious fighters uh, that boxers that I'd ever jumped in a ring with. Even from the age of 12, he just had this vicious killer streak. And if you watch his fights, I'm sure you've watched many of them, Ben. Yeah. You know, he, he, he was just, when he'd get someone hurt, or even before getting someone hurt, he just wanted want to absolutely pulverise them. And in the gym, he used to knock sparring partner after sparring partner. It didn't matter if they were heavyweights. It didn't matter who they were. And I used to say to him, Lester, you've got to pull up on your sparring partners, mate. You know, you, he just had this, this this anger, anger from what he'd been brought up with his youth. youth. And after he watched a Rocky movie, he decided he was going to be a fighter. And you've you got to give it to him because he was so single-minded about, you know, being a world champion boxer and, and taking boxing on, you know, and look, I, I personally think if and, uh, Lester's father, Keith Senior, always led me to believe that I would become Lester's trainer and manager when I retired. And we, you know, unfortunately it didn't happen that way. I mean, I was 30 when I fought Lester and he was 20 and world champion. 
And, uh, you know, Keats Jr. had taken over as trainer at that stage after basically learning as much as he could through, you know, through myself and Paul Ferrari and other fighters that we sparred with and trained with and Jack Rennie and other people. Basically became a sponge. Keith Senior became one of Australia's top trainers. But Keith Senior, uh, sorry, Keith Junior, um, Lester's brother, was one of the best motivators and you know guys who could psych you up. But Lester really, I'm, I'm pretty sure, really hated me by the time we got in the ring. There was a real, there was really bad blood between the two of us. Today, today we're great mates. Yeah, 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 of course. Um, yeah, there's an interesting moment as well before the fight when um, Lionel Rose gets he's introduced and gets in yeah. the ring, and obviously the great Lionel Rose is in the ring. You, you hug him and, and said good day. He walked over to Lester, and Lester just completely brushes him. Um, is that yeah, because he was he was just so focused and, and angry? Is that is that, that upset me? That, I think I think that's what it was, but that that really upset me. That it really upset me because Lionel was such a legend and. You know, he was just such a great, great fighter and a mate of mine. I, was, I became one of his sparring partners at uh, 18. I think I started sparring him. And certainly one of the greatest clubmen I ever had gloves on with. And if he had been dedicated, he could have won world titles from Bantamweight to lightweight, I think. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it was, it, it, you know, as well as everything else, psyched up for the fight and waiting in the ring for Lester. And then he basically brushes my idol and, and the man that, you know, really got me into the fight game 100% angered me even more so yeah I was, I was determined to do the job but uh, Lester had other ideas <laughs> yeah it was a furious start you mentioned round one um, the body shot I, I didn't realise that had done that sort of damage but round three's the big Lester Ellis round um, he, oh. he he buzzed you badly with some huge shots um, you wore them very well and you, and you actually kept talking um, through the process yeah. as well did, did you have your head at all? what happened then was um, we were in close fighting, and at that stage I kept saying to him, I'm too strong for you, I'll be here. I was talking to him already. And round three, Gus Mercurio stepped between us, if you watch it, and he, he separated us because I was in close, which is where I wanted to be. And a lot of people said Lester fought the right fight, but I made Lester fight my fight. And if, I really think if I had trained him, Lester would have had a far better jab and, and been a far better boxer, but he became such a vicious puncher and knocked everyone out. But anyway... Um, Gus Mercurio separated this and warned me for punching low and then went box on. Well, just for one split second, I was—I sort of thought to myself, I, I wasn't punching low or wasn't bowing him. Next thing I know, Lester's picked me up with an uppercut. He sidestepped and picked me up with his uppercut and crashed me with the right hand. And I remember Ray Styles, my trainer, the, the late, great Ray Styles, Kid Lewis, kept saying to me, because he had a fair bit to do with Lester too and trained Lester quite a bit, and he kept saying to me, watch his right hand, watch his right hand. Now, even though we'd had thousands of spars in the gym and wars, I'd never been really badly hurt, hardly ever hurt by anyone. But when he hit me, he picked me up with his uppercut and crashed his right hand off my chin. And man, I was in space standing and there was like an explosion in my head. I had pins and needles in my toes and he just bombarded me. And he knew I was really badly hurt. It was one of the worst shots probably as, as bad as Carter round 8 with Carter, round 3 with Lester, I was really hurt and he bombarded me and about 3 times I kept trying to grab him and I think I got him about the third time and I grabbed hold of him and I said to him, if that's the best you can do, you want to forget it <laughs> um, Were you just trying to stay in his head at that point? Is that the, is that the idea? Yeah, more or less because I mean, I knew he'd never ever, ever in all the spars we'd had 
never ever hurt me anything like this you know and I, I, I was really caught clean flush clean it was a massive right hand flush on the chin and I was I was in serious trouble and probably in my whole career only a handful of times that I was I ever like that you know never was knocked down but that was one that I was I was really in a bad way for maybe 20 seconds or 30 seconds and, and he knew too he was a, he was spot on he could he was one of the best finishers but yeah I just my experience and 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 uh, physical strength because I grabbed him every time he bombarded me and I, I and my defense was good too I mean he he wasn't hitting me clean on the chin he was hitting me on top of the head if he was hitting me and I grabbed him and hugged him up close and just said Lester that's the best you can do mate forget it you know yeah. and, I, and I sort and of meant it myself because I knew I I knew he couldn't hit me any, any goddamn hard, and he didn't round yeah. three of us there. Yeah, and then the rest of the fight, you managed to pretty much stay on the inside, fight how you wanted to, and you pulled away um, late in that fight. Um, did, did you feel yourself having it your own way you got through the back end of, of a 15-round fight? Definitely. Like, from about round eight onwards, I knew that I was, you know, starting to get in front, and couldn't see that I was losing a round. Lester would have his momentary flurries. And I've had people look at on, on uh, Facebook where they show even the Melbourne story. It's all highlights. And so much of it is clean shots that Lester's landing for maybe 15 or 20 seconds, where I was fighting three minutes of every round. And Lester, you know, couldn't... He just could not keep the work rate up that I did, you know. And I was too physically strong for him. I was bullying him around and hitting him in the body. And, and uh, yeah, after the fight... We both passed blood, but left to pass blood for about a month, I believe. Yeah. Um, what was the reception like after the fight? You mentioned, of course, beforehand um, people were against you because you were going in against the young champion. He was 20, you were 30, but um, you won the fight by by a wide margin. Uh, what was the response like after that from the people of Melbourne? Yeah, really good, actually. I, I, for about two months, I couldn't buy a drink anywhere in Melbourne. You know, it was good. Yeah. I, I just, you know, everyone was shouting me wherever I went. Occasionally, I'd get a smart comment, um, and as we progressed forward, there was always the talk about, about a rematch, and, and the Ellis camp beat it up as though I didn't want to give him a rematch, but I always was willing to accept a rematch, and took less than 30-odd years before he came out and said publicly that he never wanted a rematch. We were having a drink once about, I don't know, six, seven, maybe eight years ago, and he said to me, next time we do a talk, Baz, I'm going to tell the truth, and I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm going to say that... I never really wanted a rematch, and you always had my number, which took him, took him only took him 30 years. And, uh, well, he got there in the end, that's not <laughs> Exactly, but <laughs> well, wherever I went in Melbourne for a long time, I, I, for years there was that, uh, you know, you've got to give you... Well, for two years as world champion, I'd still have people have a go at me occasionally, say, why don't you give him a rematch? And I'd explain to them that I was always ready for the rematch, accepted it, and the night that I got smashed up in... Um, Lazar yeah, well, Gangitano, that was about a rematch as well. Well, I was going to mention that. The the pretense of that conversation was that Alphonse Gangitano wanted to meet you at Lazar's nightclub um, and discuss a potential rematch. It was um, 1987. Um, Jeff Bennett had fought earlier in the night against Tony Miller. Um, you got yep. the fight and then you went to meet Alphonse um, Gangitano at Lazar's nightclub. Not specifically, not, not specifically Ben. We... we was uh, by your drink and have a chat, is that? Yeah, yeah, it was a mate of mine, Simon Burton, Clay and I, and, and my first wife, Sandy, and we were at the fight with Tony Miller. And uh, uh, Simon had had a bit of a... Um, oh, someone made a smart crack about me, and Simon had, Simon was only 21, 
and he, he yeah. sort of stood up to me and, and it looked like there could, could, something could have happened at ringside and then Alphonse, I didn't know this until later, Alphonse had sort of intervened and said, no, no, look, you know, it's the motor barriers and it's all good and said to Simon, you know, come back to Lazar's, I'd like to talk to Barry. I got invited to about three or four different places and I made the mistake of going to Lazar's. You chose the wrong one, yeah, yeah. chose the wrong one for sure because it finished my career, to be honest. And, yeah. and we, sat, I sat, we sat down, next thing you know, a bottle of champagne came over and the waiter, waiter said, uh, waitress said, you know, this is from Mr. Gangitano, and he waved to me and said he liked, the waiter said he liked to speak to you. And after a few, quite a few drinks, I think, you know, he's going, come over, come over, went over and he shook hands and he was, he was nice at the start and we, we started discussing things and it, it, it got a little bit nasty. He was, I think he was probably um, on some substances perhaps, you know, he was, and he got a bit nasty at one stage and grabbed me by the throat and it was sort of, separated and, and it ended up we we agreed to get together with my um, waterfront colleagues who were you know part of a management team uh, in it within a week or so where my contract expired with them and I was actually signed by Frank Warren but was, mm. what Gangitano said was we'll catch up with with Leo Leo Berry and Leo McDonald and we'll sort this out and we'll get this fight happening and I said yes and I stood up and I was shaking his hand and my first wife started screaming. There was a lot going on around me. I turned around for probably an hour and a half. And I turned around, my first wife was screaming, and my mate Simon was being carried out unconscious by the security, been king hit. And I was surrounded, and I mean surrounded. And the first thing I thought was, I'm dead. I thought I was, you know, I could see that I was, you know, I was going to be carved up. And I turned to him and I said, you effing don't say you've set me up. <clears throat> and he just jumped, jumped me, and I went back on a couch and... He latched onto my cheek with his teeth, and I never got off the couch. People, they show that thing on TV where I'm held by two guys and they're battering me, but that's not true. I never got off the couch. They just pinned me there, and I had, uh, you know, my nose was smashed right across my face. Chopper Reed was in there. He believed they smashed me with one of those big glass ashtrays. I don't really know because I was... That might have been the closest I ever came to being KO'd because it was a bit, a bit of a blur, a bit of alcohol, and, and being smashed up and bitten. I was... Had ring marks all over my head, my nose. I had the biggest set of teeth marks where he tried to bite my cheek off, and uh, my nose was under my left eye. And you know, I remember being. I remember eventually one security guy sat on me, um, and I heard someone say, "You stop it, you'll kill him," because they were still whacking me. And uh, and I was wearing a, a, a jacket and, and you know dressed, dressed pretty well. And uh, then I remember another security guy sort of sat on me, and they stopped, and then they lifted me up and started dragging me through the crowd. And I remember blood spraying everywhere. And I remember people screaming. And uh, I remember being pushed out the front. And my first wife was out there. She was hysterical. And Simon, my mate, had just come in too. And I remember exactly what I said to her. I said, we've got to go to hospital. Take me to hospital. My nose is smashed. Um, but I've still got the world title. <laughs> <laughs> which, I did, which, well, yeah. which I didn't have for long after that. Four months later, I lost it because my nose broke in the first round against Rocky Lockridge, and it was sort of all downhill from there, to be honest. Um, just an incredible uh, experience to have to go through. Um, yeah, you, you say you, you thought you were going to be killed. Um, ultimately, do you think that it was the security jumping in that, that saved your life there, or, or were they planning on... on there was. I don't think they were planning on killing me, but there was definitely. There were definitely. I heard it from um, various sources over the decades, and and just long just after it that um, 
there was uh, there was a weapon produced. There was a weapon involved there, I believe. Um, whether I was going to get one in the leg or something, I don't know. But no, that didn't happen, fortunately. But yeah, they they were they were armed. Some of these some of these crew. And did you have interactions after that with Gangitano and the crew? Uh, the only time we ever saw him close close up was. Because that was uh, about that was in about uh, I think I lost the world title. It was about four months before August '87, yeah. um, and then I, uh, when I retired, I moved to Queensland. From '87 to '92, I lived in Queensland, and I came back occasionally to Melbourne. Never saw him until I moved back to Melbourne in '94, and uh, I think it was whatever, whenever the Riddick Bow Evander Holyfield fight was, I went to the Canada Hotel in Carlton. Yeah. With a couple of mates, uh, actually with Glenn Walsh and uh, Rod, Rod Carr, who's no longer with us, Rod, unfortunately, yeah. committed suicide. Uh, and and we walked into the, we were sitting watching the fight in the Canada Hotel where I had pool tables, which was one of my businesses at that stage. And all of a sudden, Gangitano came in. The word must have got, got through Carlton because that's where he was from, you know, the Carlton's king, basically, the king of lies on street. And he walked in with this big team of blokes, at least half a dozen of them, maybe even more. And they sort of walked around me and around around us. And, and you know, he looked. I looked across at him, and he looked at me, and he snarled. And I just sort of shook my head. And uh, Rod Carr leaned over and he said, "I think we're in trouble." And I said, "Yeah, I think you're right," because we were well outnumbered. And Glenn Walsh, poor Glenn, was was beside himself. And I said, "Listen," they said, "Do you want to?" Want to go? You want to go? I said, no, no, stuff them. I said, you know, we're staying here. We're watching the fight, and I went up to get some drinks, and I just, we never actually had words. I just sort of looked at him and shook my head and took the drinks back. And after about I don't know half an hour or so, maybe maybe an hour, they decided to leave, and they just filed out, and nothing happened. So we never actually exchanged. We never actually spoke again after what happened. The police would have no doubt tried to investigate what had happened in the nightclub. Um... What did you say to them? Yeah, well, they um, after I had my nose broken and reconstructed, and so I started training again, of course, which is you know what I did, for, you know, 14 odd years prior to that it was just you know just like a, a routine that I you know I was back at Jack Rennie Gym, and the police turned up, and uh, they'd already rang me, I think, said we want a statement, we want to talk about this, you know, and they came to Jack Rennie Gym, and <clears throat> I just said, look. Um, I don't want to press charges, uh, uh, and I, I ended up making a statement saying that I'd had a. And look, it wouldn't have been. Uh, how can I put this? I don't think it would have been very good for my family's safety uh, or people associated with me if I had, have, you know, told the real truth. I just said I've had a, I've had a uh, dispute with an acquaintance of mine. It's blown out of all proportion, and I don't want to pursue this any further. And I signed that. That's all. I, that's what I signed. So I didn't even mention his name. They knew everything. They knew what had happened. They wanted me to press charges. They wanted to press charges. And I just said, look, I don't want to be dragged into this. And so I signed. That was my, um, my, you know, my statement. Signed that, you know, it had been blown out of all proportion and didn't want to know about it because it wouldn't have been good, that's for sure. And, you know, that's Um, not the way I was brought up anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned that you you didn't think that they were... um, they weren't trying to kill you. Were they trying to end your career? Because ultimately, as you mentioned, they did. You only broke your nose three times, um, once against Lester Ellis, once um, in Bazaar's nightclub, and then in the it's first game against Rocky Lockridge when you lost your world title and um, uh, and lost that fight. Um, was that 
you think what they were out to do to, to, to ruin you because seemingly you hadn't given Leicester a shot or, or you'd taken their world title, as it turned out? Well, they were dirty on me because I took the world title off Leicester and they, they probably believed that uh, I didn't want to give Leicester a rematch, but we actually shook hands. We were shaking hands when my mate Simon got knocked out and uh, I was agreeing to the fight. There was a couple of stipulations. I wanted, I wanted to do a joint promotion. I said, I'm the champion. I, I deserve to make money as well. It, was, it would have been a huge rematch. And uh, but yeah, no, I, look, I, I think they just wanted to do as much damage to me as they possibly could. Him and his crew, they were all pretty crazy back in those days and a lot of them were fueled up on coke, coke whatever. Um, and I look, I think they would have probably liked to have put a bullet in me as well, to be honest. You know, maybe not kill me, but, um, you know, shoot me in the leg or something like that. You know, they certainly wanted to, they wanted to hurt me in a big way. Barry, there are always rumours that um, you were offered some money perhaps to uh, not fight at your best or to lose the fight against Lester Ellis. Is there any truth to those rumours? No, ab- absolutely none, Ben. I've, I've heard that before and I've seen it on TV that I was supposed to throw the fight. That was never the case. Um, you know, it, I mean, I had three previous officers. Well, sorry, that's uh, yeah, three, two previous officers at that stage to throw fights and one after when I was world champion. Never would have considered it, but um, there were there were were rumours that I think Gangitano and the crew um, who managed and promoted it, they put so much money on Leicester and you know Dana Goodson convinced them I couldn't make the weight that. Uh, they were just filthy that, you know, they lost so much money and, and you know, missed an opportunity to really, you know, create a lot of money. But, you know, yeah, just, just no, they, I was never, ever approached. They just thought that le- I couldn't make the weight and they thought the left was going to blow me out of there. Um, the other ones that you mentioned, one of them's um, gained a little bit of publicity lately, um, your fight against Lucky Gadalari when he was returning after five or six years out of the ring, uh, a big fight event at the Horton Pavilion. Um, you were scheduled to fight Lucky, and um, and he he made an approach to you personally. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, Paul Ferrari, who I was training with at Jack Lennon at the time, he was fighting Rocky Gattelari. They were both making comebacks. And Paul told me he was getting 2000 for the fight, and he was offered 20000 he didn't tell me by who, but he had a phone call offering him 20000 to throw the fight. Well, at the final press conference at the Steve Townhouse, I got flown up for that. And uh, Lucky got Larry and Rocky were there, Paul Ferrari. And Lucky got up and basically told the press conference he was going to knock me out and all this sort of stuff. And about a month or so before, my previous fight was Blakey Matthews, John Singleton, who was one of the promoters of the fight. And Lucky Gattelari sat ringside and saw me stop Blakey Matthews, bust his ribs. Anyway, Gadolari said to me after the press conference, after he big noted himself, uh, do you like the post? And I said, yeah, why? And he said, oh, I want to talk here. And I said, what is it? And he said, I know what you're getting paid, which was 1500 bucks to defend the Australian title. He said, I can't beat you. I came to see you fight Blakey Matthews. I know I can't beat you. I'll give you 15000 if you lose the fight. And I just said, let's see you later. Not interested, see you later, and walked away. And I was probably a bit stronger with my words, actually. But uh, they d- did actually ring me once more. I just said, not interested. Tell him not to be a brave fool because I'm going to knock him out. And I dropped him a couple of times, and he, he retired in the corner at the end of round three. Um, yeah, it, it was a magnificent fight night. There was some great names on that card. Uh, Tony Mundine Sr., um, Wally Carr fought there as well. Um, uh, Baylor won the Australian title. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Five Australian title fights, I think. Yeah, amazing at the Horton Pavilion. Um, but, uh, yeah, lucky Gadalari. Obviously, he's, he's found himself um, the wrong side of the law on, on a number of occasions. It, had that sort of come out, that, that those dealings, before um, recent times when you've started talking about it? Yeah, actually, back, way back then, a long, long time ago, yeah. Paul Ferrari, that it was front page of the Truth Mag, Truth newspaper. Yes. It doesn't exist anymore, but it, yeah. it made the Truth newspaper, and the, they rang me up, and there was a story about the whole thing a long, long time ago. So, yeah, it was already published, that one. Yeah, and um, there was a, a, another one that you've mentioned to me previously involving um, a, a major European promoter. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, well, when I fought, my first defence was Jin Sik Choi in Darwin, uh, who was the number one contender, who, you know, one loss in about 19 fights with about seven, 16 knockouts. And I signed for 140 grand, uh, knocked him out in four rounds after copying. He was a big puncher. He did hit with big shots. One stage, I don't know if you ever watched that one, Ben. At one stage, I didn't know he did a 360. He hit me with a left hook that hard. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it, yeah. Did a, did a pirouette almost. Anyway, um, after after Choi, we were looking for a you know another defence and uh, the the promoter Ian Crawford from the Choi fight. I signed for 140 grand. I was going to pay off my farm and I planned to have maybe one or two more fights. He uh, disappeared, went back to South Australia, bankrupted himself and sent me a cheque for five thousand bucks. So I never got paid for Darwin. Um, that's, that's another story. There is a bit yeah. more to it because he did go underground. Um, and tried to grow a big hydroponic crop of, of, of grass to pay me off, which he got caught with. Um, yeah, yeah, I've heard, you've told me that story. Yeah, it nearly ended very badly. Another story. Yeah, it nearly ended up badly for me too, because, yeah, yeah anyway, that's, I never got paid for Darwin, so that was my first defence. Um, I got pretty well paid for Leicester. And then uh, my from my promotional team, which was Leo McDonald, Leo Berry, Spider Holman and Jeff Patterson, decided to promote together, so we promoted a fight with Mark Fernandez, and uh, I knocked him out in four rounds. He'd just beaten Rod Sequin in Hawaii. He was number four in the world. He was a southpaw. I thought it was going to be a hard fight, and I basically crushed him in four. I realised within the first minute and a half that I was far too physically strong for him. Anyway, after that fight, um, um, I was approached by a top European promoter. He... Um, I knew his name well. He rang me up. He wanted to speak to me about a fight over over in Europe. And uh, we, we met at the lunch. He wanted to be, me, me to be by myself. And he made me two offers. And he said, I came out here expecting to see a top, because I was 31. I expected to see a tired old champion. Said, we want to we want to get a championship uh, in Denmark, it was. I'll say that. And uh, he said, I'll pay you defend the world title against my boy my boy can't beat you, I'll pay you fights on the level, $80,000 but my boy can't beat you he said, but my boy can't also make the weight, and I said, well what's the lightest you can make, and the weight limit was 58.95 super featherweight, uh, he said the lowest you can make is 63 and a half and he was already European lightweight champion at 61.2, so the scales were going to be a wrought, but he said the fight would be on the level, he said, but my boy still can't beat you, you're too strong he said, I'm willing to pay you $300,000 paid into a Swiss bank account with the, the combination given to your father before the fight. He said, you must leave the title leave the title there in Europe, retire in the corner at the end of whatever round you want. He said, he'd done his homework because he knew I'd had ruptured eardrums and had an eardrum grafted in at one stage. He said, that was uh, before I lost in Wales against Najib Daho the first time I fought him. 
And he said, you can retire in the corner. I'll have it verified by a doctor that you've got a ruptured eardrum and couldn't continue in the money as long as you leave the title there. The money will be, you know, he said you can retire. He really did his homework. He knew everything. But uh, I just said, look, I'm not interested. But back then, 300,000 US is probably about five mil today, I would imagine. Yeah, well, that that has to be tempting, even for someone of your morals and for someone who, who wouldn't take an earn for, for anything in a boxing ring. That one had to be tempting because of that, the significance of the money, didn't it? Well, you know, considering I just uh, got robbed of 140 grand, I got set, yeah. seven out of. Uh, he sent me a check for five and gave me two in cash up there in Darwin. So I, I just lost 100, and, you know, 133 thousand dollars in my previous fight, and then I got off a get off a 300 US to, you know, mm. lose the title. It was te- it was tempting, uh, but I I couldn't possibly bring myself to do it then. I thought about it, and I just thought, no, nah, look, I'll, you know, because there was talk about fights in the US for. Fight Bobby Chacon for two fifty. Talk about um, there was talk about other big fights, which none have never eventuated. The you know Boom Boom Mancini, I was still hoping at a shot at that, you know, a shot at him. But yeah, no, it was it was. I did I did think about it. I had to go away after. It was like a business discussion. The promoter, you know, he was a businessman, and uh, he said we want a world champion. I walked away from the meeting thinking I can't do it, but it's a lot of money, you know. Yeah, and I just look. I I just can't do it. I could I couldn't bring myself to do it. I wouldn't. You know, if I hadn't done it, I might have been a lot better off than I'm sure I'd be a lot better off than I am financially now. But I would never have been able to live with myself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there was a third one that you have mentioned. Um, do you want to say any details about that? Oh, probably not. It was someone that I did fight in Australia, and the offer was the fight would be a draw after the, the it went the distance and judges and that were named and I just said you know no, I can't say it's possible and I'm not interested anyway. Yeah Barry um, you did retire and, and stayed retired which is uh, all too uncommon in boxing and then you went into commentary um, and of course have caught a lot of fights for main event and Fox Sports. In all those fights um, which is the best you've ever caught? Um, that's a good question actually I've caught so many great great fights Look, the best fight I ever saw live was Aaron Pryor versus Alexis Aguayo in Miami. I didn't commentate it, but I've, I actually commentated with the great Bob Sheridan three times. Um, the first Mundine Green fight I commentated was one of the great fights that I commented. Well, you know, a, a great spectacle and mass, one of the biggest events in Australian history. But the fight that we commentated fairly recently, Jeff Horn and Michael Zarafa too, was, was one of the greatest, without doubt. It was like something out of a Rocky movie. And, probably because it's more recent, but, mate, it was, as you know, Ben, it was just incredibly exciting. You know, seesawing could have gone either way, blood everywhere, and bang, then that massive knockdown from, from Jeff Horn. It was, as we've said a dozen times, it was seriously something like, like something out of a Rocky movie, and it couldn't have been scripted in a million years the way it worked out. But that was one of the best fights that I ever had the pleasure of commentating, that's for sure. Yeah, it was an incredible experience, wasn't it? Ringside, um, you and I looked at each other at one point, I think, when Jeff pulled out that right hand, and um, oh. we were just in utter disbelief. Oh, I, you know, couldn't believe Michael Zarafa got up from it, because it yeah. just like, would have knocked a horse out. And to his credit, Michael, he got up and went down again, and then he got up, and, and you know, that that basically was the final score in the fight that swayed at Jeff Horn's way, and it could have gone either way at that stage, because 
Jeff Horn looked in more trouble than a Werribee duck, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, he certainly did. Well, <laughs> it's a really exciting time in Australian boxing. Um, Baz, we've got some great things uh, coming up once things do return to normal. Um, really looking forward to, to getting ringside with you again and calling some of these big fights, of course. We had Horn uh, Zoo, which you and I are meant to be calling together on April 22. That'll be pushed back to, to some stage shortly. But, um, yeah, can't wait to, to see you shortly. And, and thanks so much for the chat. Pleasure, mate. Anytime, Ben. Always a great great honour and pleasure working with you and calling these great Australian fights. And at the moment, there's going to be so many great fights in the future. We've got so much coming. We really do. Thank you very much, Barry Michael. Thank you, Ben. Cheers.